Welcome to Ask a Leader. Here, I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, bringing you the March 3rd, 2015 edition of Ask a Leader. Fresh from his latest travel in Cuba, UCI Chicano Latino Study Professor Emeritus and current chair of the UC Cuba Academic Initiative, Raul Fernandez covers the latest changes occurring in Cuba like no one else. Why wouldn't he? Cuba was his home and remains his classroom. Briefly at the end, we'll have the treat of hearing from President of the United Farm Workers, Arturo Rodriguez, in advance of his 50th annual Farm Worker Winter Celebration in Orange this Saturday evening. We're gonna take a short break and be right back with Professor Fernandez. Welcome back to the show, bringing the finer points of the recent Cuban rapprochement with uh, the United States is my guest, Raul Fernandez, UCI professor with the Department of Chicano Latino Studies with the School of Social Sciences. He is also the current chair of the UC Cuba Academic Initiative, which includes faculty and doctoral students from UC Berkeley, UCLA, UC Davis, UC Riverside, UC Irvine, UC Santa Cruz, and San Diego. He completed his secondary education in Cuba, received his BA from the University of California, Berkeley, and his PhD in economics from Claremont Graduate University. He joined the UC Irvine faculty in 1969, practically a founder. Professor Fernandez's research has focused on economic and cultural transactions between the U.S. and Latin America, conducting research on labor and migration, the U.S.-Mexico border, Latin jazz and Cuban music, Chicano history, and the thought of Jose Marti, a very important and enduring figure in political uh, Cuban political sensibilities. Fernandez has authored several six books. I think we're going to name all of them here, folks, to take note. U.S.-Mexico border, a political economic profile, the Mexican-American border region, issues and trends, Latin jazz, the perfect combination, 100 years of Chicano history, empire, nations and migration. And he also curated uh, from Afro-Cuban rhythms to Latin jazz and Hablando de Musica Cabana, as he uh, well uh, he co-edited Jose Martí's Our America from the National to Hemispheric Culture Studies. A Fulbright Fellow, he brought, took the uh, Perfecto, Perfect Combination program to in D.C. and it toured some years ago. And so now he, he manages a blog addressing U.S. imperial policies, which folks can follow on moralimperialism.wordpress.com. He joins me in studio today for 
largely this hour. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Raul Fernandez. Well, good morning, Claudia. I'm very happy to be here, and I thank you for your patience because you've been inviting me now for several months. I, That's and I always had an excuse, but I'm finally happy, very happy to be here. I'm I'm glad you bring that up because it is it's been a long wish to have you on because think and we knew that the longer it was deferred, the more there would be to say about That's that. Right. Seeing things are taking shape. Well, we've had the opportunity uh, to hear last December from Museum of Latin American Art Chief Director there, Stuart Ashman, himself a Cuban. He talked some about the opportunities in the wings with this rapprochement. Is is rapprochement the word you would use, or is there a better Latin word or better English word? Well, I don't know whether there's a word that captures, you know, what has happened, but basically uh, after many years, several decades of... uh, conflict between the the two countries. I think the United States was the one that uh, decided to change its policy and uh, decided that it was time to reestablish diplomatic relations with Cuba. Uh, it was the U.S. that broke diplomatic relations in 1961. It was the U.S. that uh, accepted the Cuban entreaties to uh, start talking again. Rapprochement, reestablishment of relations, Something like that. Okay. All right. Well, uh, for the moment, we're going to talk about all the finer points, but just so everybody knows just how intimate your connection is, I'd I'd like to have you talk about your most recent travel, and you can plot uh, the dots there uh, along the way of your previous stints, including your original residency, your schooling there, and and tell us how how easy it is for you to move about, because you're an American citizen, but you have... Cuban connection, so your travel uh, is, uh, the permit restrictions are a little bit more open-ended than for just an American citizen. Yes, uh, there's about three questions you've asked me there. (laughs) Let me me see if I can answer all of them. One is, I am a U.S. citizen. I also carry a Cuban passport, and it's fairly easy for me to travel to Cuba. I have done it depending on why I'm going. I have done it using one or the other passport. Uh, in the past, for about 10 years or so, I traveled with the U.S. passport on their what is called the general license provision, meaning that if you are a researcher, you're a professional, you're an artist, you're a musician, and you have some professional reason to go to Cuba, you can. Uh, that has always been the case. Uh, so between 1997 and 2008 or so, I basically traveled to Cuba as a U.S. citizen under the general travel provision because I was doing research. I was investigating uh, Cuban music. Uh, in more recent years, I've gone using my Cuban passport because I've gone to visit family or to visit friends. But for me, it's relatively easy to go. I've never had any problems. I go once, sometimes I go twice a year, uh, basically to either to see family, to see friends, or to engage in research. Uh, that's been kind of the, my recent experience since about 1997. And what's the duration of each trip that you're licensed and all to go to? Uh, usually not very long. The longest maybe is, uh, I have a hard time staying away from my wife or from my dog. So it's usually <laughs> no, no, more than, no more than 10 days or two weeks. Okay. This last one was about eight days. Okay. So it could be longer if you had, um, you have those that the liberty uh, stay longer. Yeah, I mean, I can. The, the the U.S. visa authorizes me, rather the the Cuban tourist visa, which I use, authorizes me to be there 29 days. Okay. Um, but usually, I don't like to 
waste my time when I travel there. So I go when I have a very full schedule. So I am working or doing busy from 8 to 8, 12 hours a day. Uh, I don't like to have that time okay. when I'm there. Okay. Well, now I'd like to go into some of the, the finer points about what's going on there that's not receiving so much attention. And, and you, you brought this to my attention, too. Let's just go into why now? Why is it happening now? I think there is probably several reasons. I think when these kinds of things happen, there is more than one cause. And uh, what has been said officially in the, uh, the presentation by the president was that since the previous policy, the embargo, had not succeeded in bringing about a change in the Cuban system, that now the United States is going to try a different tack. I am sure that that is one, one of the elements involved, but I think there are others. Um, one of them... But let me, for a moment, for the, from the American perspective, it didn't change. So it, uh, what's the American skin in the game for it changing? Um, that it wasn't, it's, it wasn't working in what way? Well, in the finer presumably points. the embargo or the blockade, as the, as the Cubans call it, was designed to bring about the demise of the system in Cuba. And from the U.S. point of view, from the official position, that didn't work, and so something else need, needed to be tried, which is what presumably the United States is doing now. But I think there is other reasons. that That's one of the causes, but I think the context is broader. And the context, you have to point out that uh, year after year, over the last 20 years, there was yearly a UN vote, which increasingly went against the United States with almost unanimous uh, condemnation of the blockade against Cuba by all the nations in the UN. Uh, more locally, in Latin America, uh, countries in Latin America, again, unanimously had voted increasingly to really bring Cuba back into the fold of Latin American nations. In other words, worldwide and in terms of Latin America, the United States was becoming politically isolated. But more important, um, I think, is the fact that a lot of economic competitors of the United States were beginning to really have trade and investment relations with Cuba. I'll give you a few examples. Yes. The, um, you know, just to give one simple example, one Spanish hotel chain, the Melia chain, has 26 five-star hotels in Cuba, and they're building more. There is quite a few all-inclusives handled by European companies. Brazil has invested heavily in a new um, deep port in Cuba. China is investing in Cuba. Russia is investing in Cuba. Uh, the European Union recently had announced that they would begin to reestablish step-by-step total economic and diplomatic relations with Cuba. So I think that was also another factor that here's this country 90 miles away. The United States has become politically isolated in the world. And all of its competitors are beginning to utilize that country as a, a place to invest and a place to trade with. So I think that's the context in which the change took place. So there uh, are the population. I'm trying to guess. Is it about nine million? Eleven. Eleven million on the island, and uh, so there it, there's some trade opportunities, but the, the isolation of the U.S. from the larger Latin American uh, realm 
that might be also a, a political and an economic concern. Yeah, I say, so yeah. To be a yeah. force to be reckoned with more, yeah. taken, taken uh, I guess, more seriously in terms of what... Uh, yeah, I think it was a combination of, uh, yes, d certainly the failure of the embargo to bring about the demise of the system, but two, political isolation, three, the increasing loss of economic opportunities. All those things play... All over Latin America. The increasing loss of economic opportunities for the United States in Cuba. All of its competitors are investing, right. and the United is being left out. And it's such a close, exactly, group <laughs> of, of consumers. So. Exactly. So, um, and it it it's uh, different from the. I was saying it's a kind of uh, different than a Nixon in China. This is an o Obama's portfolio is not counterintuitive to reaching out to. Uh, being pragmatic and uh, reaching out to a country like Cuba, uh, it's his demographic support is not necessarily that of the demographic that's been sustaining that embargo from South Florida. So it it this makes a, a little bit different kind of leadership mantle that Obama brings into. Yeah, I think I think every situation is a little bit different. I think in the case of China, there were some geopolitical things involved, as I recall. Right. Namely, that you know the U.S. wanted to sort of maybe drive a wedge between Russia, then the Soviet Union, and Indochina and China. was happening. Uh, some of that is happening today too, in the sense that if you look again at the worldwide picture, in addition to the things that I mentioned, the United States is really, you know, encountering let us say difficulties in places like Syria, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, Ukraine, almost everywhere you look. Everywhere. And so. You know, maybe one thing the United States wanted to do in terms of geopolitics was kind of like firm up its its influence, if its partial hegemony, if you will, over Latin America, which it had been losing since there are a number of governments, Venezuela, Ecuador, Argentina, which has sort of been Brazil as well, who've been sort of putting a distance between themselves and the United States. So I think that rapprochement, as you the word that you use for Cuba, had to do with some of the geopolitical things in that very general sense. It is similar. But hugely symbolic. Yeah. Um, also, yeah. In that sense, it's similar to what happened between Nixon and China, but only in that sense. Well, I, I know when I lumped in all of those questions, I want to have your travel from 1997 to 2008. That was after, 1997 was after the special period was creating this massive uh, economic adjustment within Cuba. So you were able to take measure of how Cubans were able to weather that withdrawal of major financial support that created a new currency. We talked about a little bit about the two-tier currency. So I'd like if you could see trends over those years that you were going. I mean, you're, you're a fluent Spanish speaker and your family is... Uh, that's still there. Are they where are they located? They're located very far away in eastern Cuba. In eastern, mm -hmm. okay. Oriente, yeah. Okay, so and would that would their response be a bit different than what's happening in Havana with those adjustments to uh, economic? Yeah. Uh, well, I think scarcities. that I uh, I started going back to Cuba to do my research sort of towards the tail end of the, of the special period. Right. Things are in a lot of ways better. Uh, now, of course, you know, it's been 18 years since I've been going every year. Uh, in terms of the relative situation in Cuba, I think Havana, relatively speaking, is prosperous compared to the rest of the, of the island. The rest of the island doesn't get 
the tourist trade. Uh, the rest of the others can get as many remittances from the United States and abroad as Havana Which does. are very important. I want for our uh, listeners to understand the remittances, it's capital that s shores up what is a very small monthly salary for the average right. Cuban. I right. mean, so it's a, it's a windfall, a right. remittance. And, I've, and I will just say from my very brief foray in Cuba, the, the eight-day people's program permit that, that mm -hmm. uh, I was able to visit, right. you can drive by in Havana, you can drive by and you can see which homes are right. beneficiaries of remittances. So remittances drop off a great deal in the oriental yeah, as, part. As you go, as you go, you know, into the interior of the country. But anyway, back to uh, the changes. I think that yes. one of the things that has, and some of the recent articles in the press uh, point that out, but it's something that I've noticed since I've been going. As the changes have come in, which means as more of the economy is handled by the by market forces and not the state, then inequalities have developed. This so is a major that, that, That's why I'm when people talk about you know changes are coming to queue, I, I'm never too excited about it because my my thought then is, okay, that is by no means a perfect system, but what will the changes mean? That it'll be more like Mexico, uh, Guatemala, Honduras, Colombia, because those countries are not really examples of you know economic equality and development either. So well, the, the, the idea that changes are, you know, a, a general benefit to everyone has never really attracted me. I don't think that is the case. And in fact, you uh, increasingly see much inequality. In we are going to talk about that. That's a central piece of that. For those of you who've just joined us, you're tuned to Ask a Leader on 88.9 FM in Irvine, where my guest is Raul Fernandez, UCI professor emeritus with the Department of Chicano Latino Studies with the School of Social Sciences, today peeling off the layers to the core of what is going on with the latest changes in Cuba. And we're talking about the, I think the largest concern and topic here about how this rapprochement drives, will, is certainly, was certainly driving uh, an income inequality here. And so I mentioned the, the two-tiered economy, the two-tiered currency. So let's talk about how the two-tiered currency which was necessary in bringing capital into Cuba during the special period that started around 1993, right, yes. roughly. And so that meant with, with this two tiers, the, the sectors of the economy that re, were receiving the higher valued Cuban peso, the kook, then the, this gave that sector, which is largely the ones that were interacting with the tourists, it gave them a, a much higher valued currency to work with uh, and improve their standard of living. And so maybe you could speak, Raul, to, with the income inequality, how certain sectors are benefiting where this and how that uh, can certainly uh, undermine the incentive for a, a, an intellectual class in the, the younger years to, to stay with their educations and, and hold down those kinds of credentials. It's not well, just... Yeah, I think that the uh, the main problem, you're right, there's basically uh, two economies in Cuba. Uh, the tourist economy or the, or the one that is geared towards, you know, the foreign markets, investments, and so forth, and the local economy. Uh, I think that the main problem with that is that you're correct, correct. Be contact through tourism, remittances, and so forth allow people to have a much higher standard of living. Um, and so you could, for example, work in the tourist sector as a waiter, 
Um, we could say a waiter, a tour guide, because there's that's opening up with the rapprochement. Uh, right. Let's see, cab drivers. It's right. It's, it's a and, low skill, um, except right. for that. Well, the tour guides are pretty high skilled. They know. <laughs> right, and you're getting you're getting access to uh, to foreign currency or to what is the same, the convertible currency, which is equivalent to the foreign currency, which then allows you to purchase all kinds of goods that are only available in that currency, etc. Uh, a taxi driver or even a waiter in a hotel is now making a lot more money than, than your counterpart. Than the two the two areas that the Cuban government has always pushed as the two cores of the of the revolutionary government, namely education and health. So if you are a nurse or if you are a teacher, you make a lot less, considerably less, and you also make it in the local currency than if you are a waitress or a person who works in a hotel or a taxi cab driver which is the reason why in Havana and in Cuba you find a lot of people that are highly educated who are driving taxis, uh, who you know move away from teaching or other you know lowly paid for professions into a profession that allows a better standard of living. I think that is really the main contradiction that the government faces. If they want to maintain the same health and education, which has been very high by all, by all accounts, they, they're going to have to deal with this, this inequality. So are you seeing any examples of how the public uh, political policy is addressing that? Uh, not yet, although presumably the, uh, the two currencies will be eliminated. Okay. Uh, there, ah. is, there is other things that have been taking place. For example, there's been increases in the salaries for medical personnel and for teachers in, in recent years, in recent months rather. So, I mean, there is, there is effort. This is obviously a problem that the government confronts, and I think that the government is quite aware of it. So there is indications they will try and deal with that in some, in some capacity. So where would the funds to raise salaries, where would those come from? Well, well there is, you know, I think they have to come again from the foreign contact in the tourist sector. I mean, uh, Cuba, uh, the tourist tourism is doing very well. Exports of minerals are doing very well. Commodity prices have been high until recently. Uh, there is also remittances. I mean, there, there is there is money around. So I know some of the the tourist uh, increment of, of revenue is being uh, redirected into the buildings restorations that are there's right. a, a constant oh that's in Havana. yeah well pr- one pr- of the difficulties in making these judgments is yes. that you know one can only and that's certainly my case and i think the case of most people that i read they go to havana they look around they take a look and on the basis of that they write i do you know and a lot of what i'm saying is again my opinion based on anecdotal view it is really difficult to uh to make a correct assessment unless we have access to all the statistics. You know, how much is the uh, the export money that comes into Cuba? We, I don't have, an, I don't know anyone who has that kind of information. Only the central planning boards have that, that information. Without that, it's really hard to really make, you know, really an accurate assessment. We're really working on our eyes and our senses. Yes. Empirical, anecdotal. Okay. Well, as we talked about this... So- income inequality, I, I want to look at the kind of leadership reflexive, uh, is it, uh, autocratic kind of um, a, a way of maintaining uh, political control there. Is, is the, the response in the, in the Cuban government, is it a, the sort of the autocratic aspect of governing a reflexive, uh, authoritative 
kind of dynamic or is it a concern for the income inequality that could really drive a, a wedge between uh, thriving and non-thriving groups, we'll call them classes for lack of a better term in this interim period? Well, you know, I think that, uh, again, those are really, really complex questions. I think that the, uh, the system in Cuba is certainly, you know, you might say that it's very centralized. You, you use the word authorita authoritative. Autocratic, author I want to say. Well, uh, I think one of the things that you have to keep in mind, though, is that, for example, there are some things that works ver work very well in Cuba. Exactly. Okay, like, for example, uh, the Coast Guard, the patrols, the jet airplanes, the armed forces. In other words, a lot of money goes in. And why is that? Why that? The reason for that is because Cuba, the government, that rightly or wrongly, has always felt under siege by the United States. You know, there have been invasions, threats of invasions, threats of assassinations. So, uh, but that's going away. We we don't know that it's going away. We don't know. We don't know it's going away because, in fact, uh, one of the problems that we confront is that there is other governments in Latin America that are democratic in the sense that they're been elected. For example, the government in Venezuela, whether we like it or not, has been elected many times, and the United States engages and actually rather aggressive policies okay. towards our government. So I, I have no, I have no, in fact, what Obama said, we have to believe our president, is that we're making this change in order to try and subvert the system in a different way. So if we're believing that he's telling the truth, there is really no reason to expect things to change in terms of the aggressive posturing of the United States towards Cuba. Okay. So the, that's, the autocratic approach to governing is... But would you agree that it's also maybe a concern for sort of hedging the bet against a, yeah, a, widen, a, a widening of income inequality? It's a, it's a little it's bit happening. of both. It's a little bit of both. I think that several things. I think that the government has that authoritarian character to it. That authoritarian character partly is also a response to this uh, feeling of a state of siege. Um, and I do think that the government realizes, I mean, the one thing that can be said about the Cuban government, whatever it's said about, about it, is that it has not been stupid. And so they are probably very cognizant of the fact that income inequality uh, can, promote, can lead to instability. And that's not something they're interested in. And uh, as you've mentioned, that we're seeing some resentment percolating with that income inequality and where probably wasn't violence, uh, uh, domestic kinds of, I don't mean domestic violence between partners, but uh, between uh, Cubans, that that's kind of an unprecedented, an, an anecdotal development. Maybe it's more trending than just anecdotal. Well, I, again, I, I've read those things. I think, again, those things are kind of uh, anecdotal. Um, I'm not sure that this has become a widespread phenomenon. Uh, there are a number of things that can be said in that regard. For example, people don't own guns in Cuba. They're not in the general population. Well, they're, that's part of, I mean, the embargoes probably makes it, they're probably terribly expensive. Well, you know. It's part uh, of it. Uh, besides a cultural. law, unless you're a law enforcement officer of the army, you cannot okay. own a gun. And the other thing about it is, and this has been pointed out for years and years, the level of homicide and violent crime in Cuba is extremely low. So I, I, just, I don't think that we can still, that we can already talk about trends. Okay. Like that, of violence and so forth. I, I did read a report about a machete fight, you know, so, some fight. Well. Um, it, it's really not at all comparable to the kinds of levels of uh, the violence that exist in countries that are friendly to the United States, like Honduras, well, Colombia, Mexico, 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 so, and Mexico. So, <laughs> oh, okay. So the and that's that's the 
Cuenta Propistas are some of those. This They're the, the entrepreneurs that are sort of moving into the the uh, opportunities that are availing themselves with the, well, you said, well, there's a, a dual, a two-tiered currency and moving into that. And they're, they're, uh, they're finding ways to, uh, to create, finding commodities to trade. Uh, I think whatever. that the, the, the small business owners, which is where the Cuenta Propistas are, they're, they're mostly concentrated in, you know, just a few sectors. Uh, primarily is, uh, the food sector, restaurants, there is dozens and dozens of restaurants that have opened up in Havana in recent years. And a number of service things like that. There's a, there's a lot of people selling, you know, small entrepreneurs who purchase vegetables and fruits at a major wholesale market and then sell it in a street corner. So a lot of the uh, small businesses in Cuba are really in the, at the distribution uh, level. The middleman. Uh, yeah, at the distribution level. The state still centralizes, buys a lot of the agricultural products, then distributes them. Uh, the major hotels are either state hotels or joint enterprises. And there's a lot of people now providing housing through, through, through private homes and so forth. But we don't have, this is not China, we don't have major local uh, independent capitalist enterprise or joint mm -hmm. capitalist enterprise for that matter. It's, it's not China yet. Okay. Oh, some people say that may be the model towards this trending, and that may be the case, may very well happen, but it's not there. It's not that yet. Oh, there's so many cultural differences that, I've, that might right. keep us from... So I wanted to ask, while we're talking about the income inequality, so many of the so resources in Cuba have been toward training a very fine uh, medical professional and uh, and educators and that they're certainly the, the they're the physicians that are keeping a lot of people alive a lot of uh, institutions going as, uh, so proficiently so competently throughout Latin America are you and do you think the leadership in Cuba is concerned about a brain drain um I think that the Cuban government wants to maintain alive those two goals of you know providing good free education at least at the elementary school level and providing free accessible you know health. Um, in terms of a brain drain, <laughs> again these things are very complicated by yes. things like uh, migration uh, restrictions, migration laws, things like that. There has been a flow of educated people from Cuba out to other countries. I think one of the, uh, I think one of the contradictions that the system faces, the Cuban government faces, is that they have, for decades, provided very good instruction, very good training uh, to large segments of the population. The Cuban public is very informed. I'm always, um, I'm always impressed by the fact that when I go to Havana. You know, depending on what the year is, where the month is, sometimes that is what they call a whole cycle of French cinema, and you watch the best French uh, films of the last two or three years. Wow. Whereas in LA, it takes me about an hour and a half once a year to go to the No Art in Santa Monica to see one. Uh, I, I, what I say, what I mean by that is that the Cuban young people are really aware of how other people live, what other people confront in other parts of the world. And they really see, in a lot of ways, no future in Cuba. To me, uh, the people in Cuba that are between 20 and, I'd say, 45, 
uh, you know, every, everyone in life wants to improve their lot, improve their housing, improve their conditions. And there seems to be, there for now, for the last 25 or so years, little room for improvement. I think that is really the, uh, the most serious thing affecting uh, the Q1 system right now. Well, complicating that, too, I want to um, have you address the IT sector in Cuba, that it makes it less permeable for Cubans to to receive resources. I mean, th- there will be a cultural fair of sorts of, for uh, Cubans to uh, consume cinema from around the world, but there, I'm, I'm still having a hard time getting there. The one artist that I did get to get uh, make connection with, and I, I had some contact with her, but I'm I'm having terrible time getting. Actually, for not, uh, Raul, you you helped me uh, navigate some of that. What let me know to what extent I could email her, send her links, and that kind of thing. Since since the internet connections are way beyond most people's standard of living that they can afford uh, to to use that. What do you see is the IT future for Cuba, and how and the permeability. How will that open up? And okay, well, what will happen? There's a couple of things about the IT system. Um, again, people say, and this is true, that the government controls access. But the other thing that has happened is because of the blockade and of the embargo, the United States has kept companies from laying out fiber optic cable to Cuba. And that is the main reason why things are so slow. Because Cubans that have access to it, have access to anything, to email, they don't dial up which we abandoned yes. 20 years ago. Now, that has something to do with the blockade and the embargo. Okay. Okay, so the, the, it takes two to tango here. Of Both parties course. are a little responsible. Um, what I want to say is that I think Cubans in general are very well informed. Now, they may not have internet at home, but someone that they know has internet. And I'm always, again, we've talked about how widespread the tourist trade is. In every hotel that I go to in Cuba, there is television sets everywhere in the bars and everywhere and those television sets of cnn in english cnn in spanish they have bbc in spanish and english and all the waiters all the people were listen to this stuff and in other words the news of the world filters down it's to everyone in, but the, go, the going out is, is and a the and the other thing that that sort of strikes me is people say well the cuban people are not informed well i go into a lot of homes even poor homes in havana where people have pirated into yes. the signals of the hotels. And they are watching programs in the United States, but they are not watching the news. They are watching the trashy programs from Miami, Spanish stations. So, I mean, this, this notion that the Cuban people in Havana or in, in, in the rest of the country are uninformed, I think is really wrong. They're just as informed and as full of misinformation and trashy material as we are. Wow. Well, and I suppose that trash is... Uh, creating a, a vision of what there's greater prosperity, that, that trashy prosperity out there that might be a, right. something think, that yeah. that autocratic reflexive regime is, is trying to uh, hedge against that bit. Yes. For those of you who've uh, just joined us, we're, we're going to wrap our discussion about what's happening now, peeling back the layers with the rapprochement in Cuba with Professor Raul Fernandez with UC Irvine at the School of Social Sciences. You've got the blog that people can follow, and I don't know, what's, your, what's going to be your next installment on there? You know, I, I'm not much of a blogger. I blog every couple of months. <laughs> it's, uh, But it's important for people to know where their resources are and uh, what where, uh, I mean, The Guardian is a pretty reliable source of what's going on. Uh, maybe you get some of your material from The the Guardian, or from are you getting uh, pieces from Cuba to, to 
to cover in on your blog? No, not really. Usually what I uh, do in the blog, Moral Imperialism, I basically yes. try and look at, uh, you know. Moral the, Imperialism. Uh, it seems that every time the United States intervenes someplace, we do it for a high moral reason. And, you know, I always have to wonder about that. Usually there is something else involved. And I try to sort of look beyond, you know, the fact that we are the good guys and everybody else is bad and that we have higher moral standing and nobody else does and get beyond that a little bit because I think that we are, you know, we have a few uh, skeletons in our closet as well. It's the it's a full closet <laughs> there. Well, uh, did you want to say anything at all as anything about the anointed successor, the first vice president of the Council of the State of Cuba since 2013, Miguel Diaz Canel? Uh, we're not. We heard a bit about him about two years ago when he was first ap anointed appointed. But is there? Anything about not hearing about him that that's uh, well, tweaking your interest? Well, I think that over the last 30, 40 years, uh, very often there have been what are were supposed to be abrupt changes in leadership. So I'm not really thinking of that Diaz-Canel. He may or may not be the person who follows uh, oh, Raul Castro in really? 2018. Because again, because the pattern has been one of uh, people being quote-unquote anointed or announced and then changing a little bit. The, the one thing I do want to say in terms of the rapprochement, please, if, if you, uh, oh, of course, is that I hope that um, that uh, the relations between the two countries, as they develop, really are on an equal basis. That you know, the United States treats Cuba as an equal, and Cuba treats the United States as an equal. That there is no, you know, a big brother like. I think if the United States insists on, like, we want to change things, we want to, how do you deal with dissidents? This can only provoke the other side to say, well, how do you deal with the high mass incarceration of black, blacks and Latinos in the United States? These are the sorts of things that really can get in the way. Well, then, with that in mind, that's a good point. That Then do you think that's why one reason why the Pope was brought on? Sort of a, as an equalizing sort of entree. I, I think that it's been much, much. I think the Pope was brought on for for one one reason and one important reason. It's because the Cuban American community in Miami, in Florida, is very Catholic, and the post, Pope was brought on to give the blessing to the agreement, as he did. It'd be very, very difficult to have. You know, because then all the bishops and all the all the uh, parish priests they have to support this. So I think it was really brought in by uh, really the behest of the Cuban government to neutralize opposition to the treaty. Well, I could see how that would benefit the president too. Yes, to neutralize. So that yes. I'm thinking that would address some of the criteria for trying to yes. level the negotiating yeah. playing field. It, it was to the benefit of uh, the administration in Washington and was to the benefit of the administration in Havana. Both of them were interested and the Cuban-American community not reacting too strongly. And the best way to do that was to bring the Catholic Church in. Well, is he going to stay stick around? Who? The Pope. Uh, I hope so. In terms of the <laughs> uh, contributing more. I mean, it was about, about sort of... Yeah, he, he got, he got a, 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 you know, a, his, uh, his piece of the action for it just about a month before the announcement was made for the first time in Cuba in 50 years. Uh, the building of a new Catholic church was announced. So he, he got his uh, his piece of pie in exchange. There's no free lunch, we say, in the United no, States. No, 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 <laughs> no. So I don't know. Now, Guantanamo is something I'd like to bring up at a later date. If you can come back to the show and talk about new developments, there are, always, there are going to be some now for the next 
20 years. So uh, right. we could uh, keep having you back every... Uh, I'd the, be very happy to come. Fernandez by Banya Anyal. So uh, I, I really thank you for coming all the way to the studio today and uh, talking about what's going on in Cuba. When is your next trip, Raul? Uh, probably be at the end of this year, probably November, December, at the latest February of next year. And then uh, it'll be about the music, which we're going to close out on a piece that it's an ensemble. There's such... I mean, c Cuban music is a highly competitive cultural sector, and, and you've been studying that. You've been watching that, and you know better than I, but for to the naked ear, it's, it's phenomenal. It there's, is phenomenal. There's not one lousy Cuban <laughs> perfor music performer that I've uh, ever encountered and I <laughs> could imagine. So um, we'll, we're going to close out with a little piece of that. But Well, thank so you very you're, much, you're Claudia. You're going to take up some—you'll be list, uh, checking in more with the music scene. With, that's part of your itinerary. Maybe the next—yeah. Maybe the next time I come, we can play more music. Okay. Well, we will. <laughs> we Definitely. So I want to thank you, Ralph Fernandez. He's the UCI professor emeritus with the Department of Chicano Latino Studies with the School of Social Sciences, talking about Cuba. We're going to be back after a, a station break to bring on United Farm Worker President Arturo Rodriguez, who's going to be here in Orange at the end of this week. Stay tuned. I'll be right back after I get him dialed up. Thank you. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My last guest is Arturo Rodriguez, the current president of the United Farm Workers, here to bring a briefly speak with us about his appearance of his address at the 50th annual Farm Worker meeting at the, this Saturday in Orange County. It's the 50th anniversary celebration. Although much a longer interview we envision later on this spring, it's an honor to bring him on for a, a few minutes to post us on the event. He joins us from Keene in California's Central Valley. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Arturo Rodriguez. Thank you so much, Claudia. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here to be on your program and talk to your listeners a few moments here about some of the good work going on. And we just want to do a quick shout out to all the folks that are part of the Orange County Interfaith Committee. They're just so loyal, Suzanne and all the rest of the team over there, they've just been awesome throughout the years and a great credit to helping farm workers improve their lives and their working conditions throughout the nation. I'll close out the show with the details so we can let you carry the torch with what are the essential messages that you want to bring to the celebration at the Plumbers and Steamfitters location at local on Chapman Avenue in Orange. What are the essential things, Mr. Rodriguez, that you want to make sure the attendees are going to hear and take away? Well, there are several different major areas of work that we're engaged in right now. And number one on top of the list is that the reality in the United States today is yes. that probably 80% of the women and the men that harvest our fruits and vegetables do not have legal status here in the United States. And we were so thrilled to hear that President Barack Obama uh, last you know, in the month of November had issued an executive order that was going to give an opportunity for farm workers throughout the nation as well as immigrants in general to obtain work permits so they could work without fear of any type of deportation, their families being split up and divided and so forth. 
And so that we're going to share with folks where we are in that campaign, where we are in that effort, and all the work that we're doing there. And so it, we're really looking forward to that, to, to be a part of that. And then we have a major campaign right now with the largest tree fruit grower in the United States, Grow and Farming Company, which is located in Fresno County. And that's of utmost importance to the, to the workers there to win that particular campaign. There's probably about 5,000 workers that work there during peak, Claudia. And these workers have been fighting now for over 20-plus years to be able to get a contract. And the state of California actually mandated that, they, that there be a contract between the parties, and the company has refused to accept the state order. So we have a lot to share with them in regards to those two major issues for sure. And then, of course, you know, all the work that we're doing now exploring how do we protect farm workers that are working in other countries and shipping their products here in the United States for American consumers to, to uh, utilize at their tables. And so that's a big effort that we're looking into for the future uh, because of the fact that more and more we see our avocados or our fruits or our vegetables or all types of products coming from many countries throughout the world and that are being shipped here so that consumers can have table grapes year-round, for example, or they can have oranges, or they can have pears and all different kinds of fruits, and they can have avocados um, continually on their tables. So that's a major effort of ours as well, and that, again, it's uh, looking towards the future. Well, I know um, I didn't mean to speak over. Garawan, um, the farm company that with whom you've been uh, struggling uh, to raise the terms under which they are hiring labor. It's Garawan, G-E-R-A-W-A-N, for people to watch what their firm is, watch, tra- trail back to where they have ownership of pro- means of production for, for consumers to be aware of the connection with what they are trying to leverage in terms of farm workers' conditions. So I, want, I didn't mean to speak over that. And you were talking about the equitable food initiative that's it's local and I guess it's international so there is a if maybe you could say in one moment what is the best thing for a consumer to do to tack in their consumer selections with under reinforcing the equitable food initiative well unfortunately it hasn't come to stores here in this particular area yet Claudia but we hope to get it here I think the most important thing though that consumers can do is become part of our email program so we can advise them and, and keep them well aware in terms of all the activities that are important to farm workers here throughout the United States. And we welcome folks to go to our, our uh, website at any time so that we can be able to continue to promote um, the efforts of the United Farm Workers, the UFW Foundation, who we work very closely with, our sister organization, and everyone else. So United Farm Workers, that's the website. UFW gets everybody where they need to go. 
That's exactly okay. right. Well, I want to thank you, Arturo Rodriguez, president of the United Farm Workers. You'll be, he'll be in orange. I'll give the details. I don't want to keep him. He's got to keep a lot of plates, crates, baskets up in the air and uh, <laughs> on all of our behalf because safe food is safe for the worker, the consumer, and for everybody. So the theme couldn't have more self-interest dispersed throughout all levels. So I want to thank you so much for giving us valuable time, and I hope to see you on Saturday evening. So thank oh. you. Look forward to it, Claudia, and uh, we work very, very hard to ensure that there is a safe and just food supply for consumers, for farm workers throughout America. Oh, amen for that. Thank you so much for being on the show. Take care. Take Thank care. you. Bye-bye. Arturo Rodriguez is going to be celebrating that event, and that is going to be at the... 1916 West Chapman Avenue in Orange. That's the Plumbers and Steamfitters Union Local 582. It, the program begins at 5, and he'll, I think, speak in earnest at about 7 o'clock that night. The United Farm Workers Foundation can give you more information on the website. I'm so glad we could have him on the show. Next week on my show, I'm going to have on the two women from the law school that are going to bring up the uh, vagina monologues that they present every year as a fundraiser. That is going to be Jessica Youngsmith and Nancy Sotomayor. It's an annual tradition there. Talk with you next week. Thanks, everyone, for listening.